Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait. You look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money. A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. Before we start the show, I have a quick word from our sponsor, Verbo. Struggling to find the perfect vacation home? You need Verbo. They do the hard work for you matching you to the perfect place to stay every time. From condos to cabins, places with yards, grills, or hot tubs, they've got it all. Search VRBO in the App Store to download the Verbo app today. Take a vacation from the frustrating vacation search. That's Verbo, V-R-B-O, available in the App Store now. Let Verbo find a home that matches you. Welcome back to Case Closed. I'm your true crime guide, Charlie Spicer. In this episode, we start at Rusty's funeral. Then we look at the various avenues police take in their investigation. Witnesses, CCTV footage, and the van. These three points provide key clues for police. And so we begin on Sunday, November 21st, two days after we last left off with Andrea, three days after the murder. It's the day of Rusty's funeral. His family and friends gather in the Arlington Memorial Park Cemetery in a neighboring town. The funeral proceedings follow typical Jewish traditions. We pick up as the casket is lowered into the ground, mourners surrounding the vacant space. On Sunday, November 21st, the casket was lowered into the rich Atlanta soil. Per Jewish custom, mourners took turns shoveling dirt onto the casket, a final sign of respect. I can't do it, Rusty's father would later say, because I don't have the stomach for it. He certainly couldn't do it this day. He watched as others dropped dirt on his son's coffin. Jewish tradition calls for the body to be buried quickly, but the police investigation trumped tradition. Rusty's body was released to the funeral home within days, and Donald placed funeral notices in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the Cleveland Plain Dealer, and the Cleveland Jewish News. The notices said that Rusty Snyderman, a devoted and loving husband, father, son, and loyal friend, had died unexpectedly. Rusty was known for his big heart and large circle of friends, it said. We miss him dearly. His death sent shockwaves through the Jewish communities in Atlanta and Cleveland. His murder garnered regular coverage in Jewish publications and became a hot topic of discussion on message boards. Remembrances flooded an online guest book for the funeral. Several of Andrea's co-workers came in carpools arranged by her boss, Hemi. Hemi was among those who shoveled dirt onto the coffin. Mourners then gathered at the Snyderman's house to sit shiva, the period of mourning that can last several days. People brought food and offered condolences. Hemi introduced himself to family members, including Rusty's brother Stephen, and spoke to Rusty's father. The family asked Hemi to sit up front and say a prayer, which he did. He shook hands and embraced mourners. 
Like Donald, a dazed Andrea would only recall some of the day's events. She vaguely recalled Hemi being there, but didn't know how long. Andrea described the days after her husband's murder as being one long blur of activity and crowds and little time to properly grieve, much less process the surreal notion that she was in the middle of a murder case. The day of the funeral, while everybody was at the cemetery, police searched the Snyderman house again, trying to find Rusty's wallet. Instead of obtaining another search warrant, Thompson reached an agreement with Andrea that the search would be conducted while everybody was away to avoid disruption. A neighbor was assigned to monitor police to ensure that nothing that Andrea deemed inappropriate was taken. Andrea set the ground rules, Thompson later said. The department was eager to keep relations with Andrea good and lines of communication open, but it wasn't an ideal way to operate. With Thompson and Cordellino turned away from the house the first night, then given resistance the next night about taking the computer, it did not arouse my suspicions, Thompson later recalled. There's a man who was sleeping in my backyard. He's running. I think he has a gun in his back pocket, and now he's running away. I don't know who the hell he is, and I don't want him by my house. This was a recording of the 911 call Rusty placed on November 10th after he stumbled on the man on the side of his house. As promised, police followed up on Andrea's suspicions that this incident may have been linked to Rusty's murder. Detective Thompson not only reviewed a police report, but listened to what in all likelihood was the last time Rusty's voice would be recorded. It was touched with fear. After reviewing the police report and the recording, Thompson canvassed the neighborhood, asking if anybody else had seen the man. Thompson walked the path through the woods that the man had apparently used. He spoke to people at the construction site, but nobody else had seen the man or anything else unusual around that time. The lead seemed to be a dead end, one of what would be many in the early days of the investigation. But the possibility that Rusty's killer may have been somebody familiar with his house and probably Rusty's routine still had credence. According to FBI statistics, 54% of murders are committed by people who knew the victim. Did Rusty's killer know the family? The case seems to have no concrete leads either way. Let's hear about a witness who saw the killer's face in the parking lot of Dunwoody Prep. Will anyone recognize the bearded man in a silver minivan? Lawrence Minogue, a Dunwoody resident, heard about the shooting on his car radio at about 1 p.m. on November 18th. He called police to report he had seen the silver van mentioned in the news report at about 8.15 a.m. that morning in front of the school as he dropped off his son. Minogue didn't believe the van belonged to a parent because it had no car seat. The driver appeared to be in his mid to late 30s, of Middle Eastern descent, with a bushy beard so jet black that it had to be fake, and what appeared to be short hair sticking out of the hood of a sweater. The day after the shooting, Minogue went to the Dunwoody police station and worked with artist Marla Lawson to draw a sketch of the man who may have been staking out Rusty's house before the murder. Lawson would create police sketches in a number of high-profile cases for local agencies and the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. Working off Minogue's descriptions, Lawson created a drawing that Thompson would distribute to the public. 
On the evening news the night after the shooting, Atlanta residents were presented the black-and-white image of a swarthy man with a beard and no mustache, a cap, broad nose, and full lips. The effect was sinister. If anybody could put a name to the face in the sketch, they did not come forward. None of Rusty's friends, business associates, or family members recognized the man in the drawing. On Tuesday, November 23rd, five days after the murder, with Thompson getting nowhere, the police department summoned reporters to headquarters for a press conference. Dunwoody Police Chief Billy Grogan began by summarizing the stark facts about the murder of Rusty Snyderman. This does not appear to be random in nature, he began. The victim was shot multiple times at what appears to be point-blank range. We do have several witnesses that actually saw the shooting, and from those witnesses we were able to get a composite, or a sketch, of what the suspect may look like. And this is the sketch. He pointed to the drawing tacked to the wall behind him. He then announced that the Snyderman family was offering a $10,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible for this terrible crime. And so the leads came flooding into the station. Police followed up no matter how far-fetched. They hoped that somewhere in the chaos was a clue to their killer. We pick up with Detective Thompson. The leads kept Thompson busy and distracted and brought him no closer to solving the case. He admitted as much the day after the press conference when he interviewed Andrea for the second time. Thompson wanted to get Andrea away from her relatives and the distractions in her house. He spoke to her in a designated interview room with a wall-mounted video camera that he activated with a switch outside the front door. Sitting across from Andrea, he had taken off his coat and wore his dress shirt and jacket. Andrea dressed in a long-sleeved sweatshirt and appeared tired. Thompson told her that six days into the investigation, police had made little progress. This is not going to be a quick process, he said. After covering some of the same ground from the previous interview, he began by asking about her relationship with Rusty. For the next half hour, he brought her through the entire story of her marriage, from meeting Rusty at the weekend retreat at the Hillel at the University of Indiana, through their moves to Chicago, San Mateo, Boston, and Atlanta, their wedding in the synagogue founded by their grandparents, having children, and settling in Dunwoody for the good public schools. An hour into the interview, he finally got to the questions he'd warned her about. After the break... Detective Thompson shifts from good cop to bad cop and starts pressing Andrea for more information. What will she reveal? Stay tuned. This week's episode is supported by the vitamin subscription service, Care Of. If you're feeling low on energy or you need more sleep, give yourself an extra boost this season with Care Of!, Care Of's fun online quiz makes it easy to find the vitamins and supplements that are right for you. Just answer a few questions about your diet, health goals, and lifestyle. In just five minutes, you'll get a list of scientifically backed recommendations for vitamins, protein powders, and more, all personalized just for you. There are even vegan and vegetarian options available. There's so many options for vitamins these days, and it can be overwhelming to choose. Care Of's Easy Quiz gave me a personalized list and found a mix that's perfect for me. For 50% off of your first Care Of order, go to TakeCareOf.com and enter Case Closed 50. 
That's TakeCareOf.com and enter Case Closed 50 for 50% off your first Care Of order. This episode of Case Closed is brought to you by the audiobook edition of Redemption Point by New York Times bestselling author Candace Fox. It's read for you by Audi award-winning narrator Ewan Morton, a talented voice and stage actor who also stars on Broadway as King George in Hamilton. Redemption Point is a thrilling fiction audiobook you'll love. When former police detective Ted Concafi was wrongly accused of abducting Claire Bingley, he hoped the Queensland rainforest town of Crimson Lake would be a good place to disappear. But nowhere is safe from Claire's devastated father. While on the run, Ted runs into another set of murders. His hunt for the truth will draw him into a violent dance with evil. Finding redemption may cost Ted his life. Listen to an excerpt of the audiobook at macmillanaudio.com slash redemption point. That's macmillanaudio.com slash redemption point. We pick up in the interrogation room. Thompson asked how Andrea's boss had expressed his interest in her. She told him that while at dinner on one of the business trips, he had told her that she was fantastic and that he would love to have a relationship with her, but knew that was probably unlikely. So it was a sort of polite come on, Thompson suggested. Very, she said. That's right. He really respected me as a person. Thompson asked if he was married. Oh, yes. He has children? Yes. Did he go into any other further detail about how he would want to work a relationship? Not really, said Andrea. Her tone now changed. She became businesslike. Let me describe this to you, she said. We're close friends, he and I. Even once he said that, and I said no, and we worked together a lot, traveled together a lot. We're friends. I want it to be clear. It wasn't just that you're great and I'm interested and it's that or nothing. Am I saying that the right way? We continued our relationship. It sounds to me like you had a strong enough friendship beforehand that this didn't disrupt anything. Was a blip on the radar and got past it, Thompson said. Exactly. Andrea told Thompson that she and Hemi Newman went on trips about once a month, site visits. She said that they had traveled to Minden and Longmont, Colorado. She said that Rusty wasn't always happy about her traveling, and she added that in September she had gone to England. How many of your business trips does your boss go with you? Thompson asked. All of them, she replied. Andrea told Thompson that because they traveled together, they had become friends. Thompson asked if they ever had rooms on the same floor of the hotels where they stayed, to be convenient. Andrea told him that they didn't always control where the hotel put them, but that it was neither here nor there. They had no problem being next door to each other. Without prompting, Andrea then said, My mom knew about this Hemi thing. I mentioned it to her. He expressed an interest. I needed to tell someone. She's the only one that didn't jump up, Thompson said, a reference to the family's reaction when he asked the question during the interview at Andrea's house. There you go, Andrea said. There's no point in telling the rest of the family. There is no point, the detective agreed. No one needed to know. I was sort of surprised you said it with everybody around, Thompson told her. Speaking in a whisper, so softly the interview room microphones barely picked it up, Andrea said, I'm not hiding. Thompson assured her, I don't get the impression that you're hiding anything. 
And I don't think that this Hemi thing is anything. I really don't, she said, her voice louder. If I did, I'd sit here and give you 50 other reasons why. I don't know. That's up to you to figure out, I guess. Thompson and Cordellino would agree on priorities. Looking into Hemi Newman could wait, favoring other avenues of investigation. And on it went. The interview lasted a few more minutes before Thompson ran out of questions and sent Andrea on her way. Andrea has now been interviewed by police twice. Is the choice to keep her on good terms and explore other avenues of investigation the right one? The police shift their attention to the parking lot of Dunwoody Prep. There are 47 security cameras that canvas the grounds. We pick up the story with these tapes. The day after the shooting, CDs of the footage from the two cameras with the best view of the scene, those trained on the parking lot, were submitted for analysis to Walter Pineda, a former Pinkerton detective who went on to start his own company that specialized in analyzing security videos. He could adjust the contrast, color, and darkness of the moving images in the hope of getting a better view of the shooter. He could also lift the best images from multiple cameras and edit them together like a movie to provide a better sense of movement and time. In this case, he created an eerie sequence that began about an hour before the crime when the van pulled into the parking lot at 8 a.m., left, then returned about an hour later. The effect implied that the shooter either was casing out the school, looking for the best location to kill, or had shown up at the wrong time, since the van went back to Rusty's neighborhood and then reappeared on the security footage at 9.10 a.m. Rusty's infinity could be seen approaching the school, with Ian in the back seat and the van on his tail. Nowhere in all the footage could any part of the actual murder be seen. It all occurred in a security camera blind spot. Nor could Pineda generate a better image of the shooter, in all the frames, the assailant remained a bearded blur. But what did come through clearly, better than any of the descriptions provided by eyewitnesses, was the van. Witnesses had variously characterized it as a Chrysler, Kia, and Hyundai. Chief Grogan went public, calling it a Dodge. It was silver or gray and probably new. The security cameras captured the van from different angles, the enhanced images providing police a strong hope of narrowing down the getaway vehicle. Detective Thompson brought the photos to Chrysler, Honda, and Ford dealerships, but none said the van looked like one of theirs. A colleague, Officer Brian Tate, the policeman who'd gotten the first call to the crime scene, suggested the van looked like a Kia. Looking at the photos on the company's website, Thompson compared the body shape, hubcaps, side-view mirrors, and lights. It all added up to a Kia Sedona, a family minivan. The general manager of a local Kia dealership examined the enhanced photos and confirmed that the murder van was in fact a 2011 Sedona, on the market for only weeks. A call to Kia headquarters found that 1,600 of those vans had been sold in the United States, but only 13 were sold in Georgia and South Carolina. So began the time-consuming process of hunting down the van. Working off Kia's list, police visited every buyer, then took pictures of the vans and checked alibis. All the Sedona owners were cleared. But before police had to expand the search to other private buyers outside Georgia and South Carolina, Thompson got an idea. 
The enhanced photos from the security cameras revealed what looked like white stickers on the van's windshield and driver's door window. A friend told Thompson that rental car agencies use window stickers with barcodes to keep track of their vehicles. Could the killer have rented the van? Police refocused the search for 2011 Kia Sedonas sold as fleet vehicles to rental agencies in Georgia and North and South Carolina. This meant tracking down fewer vehicles than the more than 900 sold to private buyers outside Georgia. As investigators logged miles and hours tracking down vans, Thompson continued to chase leads to the tip line and from other law enforcement agencies. By mid-December, a month into the investigation, it was all hands on deck for the Snyderman case. Sergeant Cordellino obtained a list of fleet Kia Sedonas sold in the southeast, then sent word to all the rental agencies in the region to hold on to their rentals until police could go out and inspect them. For each Sedona that Cordellino found, DA investigator William Presnell would head to the lot and take a photograph for comparison. When a Kia Sedona was returned to one Enterprise rent-a-car, Presnell headed out to take a look. The lot was located on Riverstone Parkway in Canton, 25 miles northwest of Dunwoody, in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains in the heart of Cherokee country. By the time Presnell got there on December 14th, the van had been rented out again. Presnell left his business card asking for a call when the van was returned. His phone rang a week later. On December 21st, he returned to the agency and saw the Sedona, silver with a sticker on the window, with South Carolina plates. The van looked like the one in the security video stills and was impounded. Forensic technicians conducted a thorough search, recovering small, dark, synthetic hairs. Working off Enterprise records obtained by subpoena, Thompson tracked down the people who rented the van over Halloween and asked if anybody had worn costume wigs or beards. They said they had not. The records showed that the van had been rented from another Enterprise rent-a-car agency in Marietta on November 17th and returned on November 18th. The contact number was a cell phone. Sergeant Gary Cordellino called it on December 26th. Hemi Newman answered. Hemi Newman, who hired Andrea at GE Energy, who said a prayer for the mourners at Rusty's funeral, who professed his feelings for Andrea. Hemi Newman rented the car that followed Rusty into the parking lot that fateful November day. The synthetic hairs found in the car confirmed that the driver wore a wig or fake beard. Why did Hemi rent the car? Was he the one driving at the day of the murder? Next time on Case Closed. Case Closed is a production of Macmillan Podcasts. This season is based on the book Crazy for You by Michael Fleeman. Get the book or the audiobook using the link in our show notes. The show is produced by Becky Celestina with help from Katie Ferguson, Sarah Grill, and Alyssa Martino. We also want to thank Michael Fleeman. Can't wait to hear what really happened to Rusty Snyderman? Hear all of this season right now on Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcherpremium.com slash caseclosed and use code CLOSED to start your free trial. I'm Charlie Spicer. Thanks so much for listening. Stop. 
Stop punishing yourself with bland, chalky protein shakes and fuel your fitness with the best protein in the game at GNC. We've got the hottest brands and flavors that legit taste like cookies, your favorite cereal, indulgent desserts, and more. It's on at GNC.